Welcome to What in the World, a project initiated by Hungry for Life International. Today's podcast is titled Part 1, What Does Anxiety in the Workplace Look Like? And How Can You Manage Yours? Jess will be interviewing Dave Lundell, so grab your headphones, sit back, relax, and listen as we start a two-part series about where leadership anxiety comes from, systems theory, and internal anxiety. Hi, and welcome back to another week of the What in the World podcast, where we talk about a lot of different things. I've kind of given up the title of this, but today we have Dave Blundell back to talk to do a two-part series on a couple things. Family systems theory, anxiety, and how they relate to each other. And, you know, there's probably going to be a few other hot topics in there too, so it's going to be a good one. Part one is going to be focusing on the internal aspect of anxiety and managing that and how to bring that into leadership. And the second part is going to look at the external factors. So stay tuned. It's going to be a good one. I think. hope so. I hope so. Welcome back. Thanks. Good to see you again. You're pretty much a vet on this podcast. <laughs> um, so like I said, we are talking about kind of managing leadership anxiety. We're not going to call the podcast that, but we are all... <laughs> As a staff reading this book, if you're if you're watching this on YouTube, um, you can see the book that's in my hands called Managing Leadership Anxiety by Steve Cuss. And do you want to explain why you are forcing us all <laughs> as a staff to read this book? It's a fantastic book. But you liking it so far? I'm loving it so far. I'm I'm like three quarters of the way through. Really? You're yeah. ahead of the game. Well, we had the podcast today. So that's true. You had to get ready for the podcast. <laughs> yeah. So why Managing leadership anxiety when we're not all leaders of an organization, all of us staff, but there's some tidbits in here. So explain, explain yourself. Yeah, I'll start, <laughs> I'll start with my own journey before we get into the, the book or any of the concepts. And it's all relatively new to me too. And, and what I mean by that is I had recognized some patterns in my leadership, my life, my responses, what was going on internal to me. I had been noticing patterns for years, which we'll get to in a minute, but but then as I was exposed to, first of all, I, I kind of wanted to understand what those reactions and what those patterns were in my life. And uh, I started to kind of be exposed to some different thoughts around the, the, the world of, of internal leadership formation, the concepts of internal anxiety. Stress is another word that's often used, like leadership stress. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and first of all, managing that within me, I was exposed to some thoughts around systems theory, family systems theory, its effects on leadership and organizations. And, uh, and it was a, it was a big deal. I was at a place in my life where I was super strong. One, one of the quotes in the book is burnout often doesn't necessarily relate to being overworked. It Mm -hmm. more relates to being, being so stressed and anxious in your relationships that you can't handle it anymore. And I was experiencing that kind of burnout, not burnout from overwork because I love our work. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yes, you can do, you can often do too much work and you have to have boundaries there. But what was causing stress and anxiety for me wasn't the amount of workload. It was the relational stress in the workload. And I needed to figure that out. Mm. And so I started on that journey, read a couple of, read a couple of books, just introduced to the concept, another book that we'll refer to that Steve Cuss refers to. That's Ed, Ed Friedman's book. Uh, failure of nerve, leadership in an age of the quick fix. Mm. And so, and then I went on to Steve Cuss's book and it kind of gelled a whole bunch of things for me that kind of changed my world, changed my life, changed my internal responses to things. Mm. 
and made me a healthier leader. And you felt that that it would probably be quite beneficial for all of us to be our healthiest selves. Yeah, and what what was happening is I as I was learning these things a couple of years ago, starting to learn these things a couple of years ago, I was seeing them lived out in family. I was I saw them I saw the effects of relationship systems and systems theory in our own organization. Now that we're working with leaders and their teams of other organizations, I'm applying that on a regular basis mm-hmm. with other organizations and their teams, especially ones that are kind of chronically anxious mm-hmm. is the word that they use to describe chronic reactivity, uh, conflict that's that you just can't seem to solve. Not so much conflict on concepts, but conflict in relationships. And so Really, I'm using these things every day to manage myself, but I'm also using these tools every day to help leaders manage these same kinds of things in their organizations. Would you say most organizations that you work with have an element of this that they struggle with? Of if the, yeah. Wherever there's a system of relationships, mm-hmm. this applies. Mm-hmm. Work, home, church, community, uh, whenever there's a system of relationships these these truths and these thoughts would apply to those in terms of how to make those relationships truly connective relationships without without as much as possible um, stress in the relationship system not absolutely tanking the person that's dealing with it right which it was for me yeah i think a lot of us can relate to that Mm -hmm. i mean this the systems theory otherwise known as family systems theory can you, this, it's a bit of a foundation to the next yeah. two episodes. Do you want to give a bit of a breakdown as to what is systems theory? It, correct me if I'm wrong. It started as family systems theory, right? There, there, systems theory is a principle in and of its own. That's separate okay. from family systems theory. Gotcha. Um, systems theory is just the concept of, of something, when something happens, it affects everything else. Mm-hmm. So you think of, think about like, over the crib, baby's crib, you've got like those mobiles that are there and they look at them. Mm-hmm. If you touch one part of the mobile, the whole, every parts of the mobile move. That's the way to think about systems theory. That's why another way to think about it over the last couple of years is how does COVID cause a lack of toilet paper being at Costco? Right. How does yeah. COVID affect the supply chain of computer chips? Everything is interrelated, and when something happens to one part of the system, the rest of the system is connected to it. Mm-hmm. So that that existed before, but family systems theory was something that was introduced by Marie Bowen, a psychologist that, that did lots of work with families. And he basically took that concept of systems theory and applied it to relationship systems first in the family. Mm-hmm. And, and now it's really applied to everything. And, and the way to think about systems theory for the purpose of this podcast is the it's the emotional functioning the emotional functioning of one person in the system affects everybody in the system and so that's that's the concept of family systems theory or mm-hmm. systems theory when something happens to one person in the system it affects everybody else yeah and in our heads we're probably all thinking of the one person who is affecting our <laughs> yep. system but that's yep. not what we're really going to focus on right now the right. whole the whole idea of this is to um for each person to show up the healthiest version of themselves, themselves, and therefore everyone will have to change their reaction to that to to match the the non-anxious or the healthy person. Right. Is that is that? Yeah, and and what I love about what you just said is it's the realization that when you know when I say emotional functioning in one person affects mm-hmm. the whole system, we all mm-hmm. first of all think of that one person, we do. just like you said. Yeah. 
But as leaders, Mm -hmm. what if we're that one person? Mm -hmm. Our emotional functioning as a leader will have a greater ability to affect the whole system than anybody else in the system. And so we're going to start by talking about us being the the, the one person first. Whatever happens, the the, the emotional functioning of me affects the family, the organization, Mm -hmm. the community that I'm a part of. And that's the place to start, not by focusing on the other person. In fact, by the focusing on the person, yeah, yeah, by focusing on the uh, the problem person, we actually create more chronic reactivity rather than focusing on ourselves in in that process. Right. There was an example in the book. Oh, it was about um, a dad, a widow, a widower. Uh-huh. Do you remember this? The in the book? No, not the, yet. The kid was the. Dad's son kept coming up to him and wanting affection and love. And the dad was like, man up. Like, yeah. so his his prescription for this problem was to push him away and toughen right. him up. But it created more anxiety in the, in the child. In the child. And that's, yeah. that's kind of just a very basic example of kind of what you're talking yeah. about, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. And, and especially in organizations and in families, there's there seems to be always one or two people that are chronically emotionally reactive Mm -hmm. and we tend to think of them as the problem people Mm -hmm. and think what's the solution for them right and we'll get to that yeah in the second half in the external external factors um speaking of internal factors uh let's break down internal anxiety just so that we can kind of start to focus inward for this half of the podcast this half no this podcast this pause yeah this one um the book gave like some a few specific examples like Self-proclaimed not exhaustive, but let's go overview. Internal sources of anxiety, recovering from a mistake. So a previously made mistake that you are now stepping Uh into problem solving and you're anxious that you will do the same thing. Giants on your shoulders. So your your subconscious, I guess. Blind spot knowledge. What was that one again? It's just like being aware of it or somebody bringing it to your attention? Both, either, yep. Judgment, values violation, when somebody violates the values we have, whether we are aware of them or not, mm-hmm. I think that's that's an interesting one. And uh, you know what? Maybe I'm going to stop on that one for a sec, because I think that goes into another interesting point the book had about childhood vows causing mm-hmm. anxiety. Can we talk about that for a sec? Yeah. I think we all probably have a lot of subconscious values that were instilled in us from our parents and that could come from a whole generation of who knows what yeah. and now you're approaching a situation or a problem with that lens and you don't you're you yourself are not necessarily even aware of your childhood vows but you're reacting that way you're reacting i'm not making sense can no, you, you explain are. it better <laughs> <laughs> well from a personal example where I started to realize the unhealthiness in my own emotional responses to people and situations is that the childhood vows I made in my family at the time was whenever, whenever there was some family chaos, uh, I, I took on the, I took on the responsibility to make everybody's life easier. So when one part of the family would create chaos for another part of the family, my job was to be the in-betweener. Are you the middle child? No. Oh, no. (laughs) Okay. That was a side note. Continue. <laughs> no, I'm the oldest. Okay. Which which factors into relationship or family systems theory is mm. that birth order, uh, childhood experiences, family of origin stuff right. affects all of this. That's yeah. the that's the root yeah. of all of this, and that's why I don't think 
anybody can deal with internal anxiety unless they deal with family of origin issues. Mm -hmm. And, and so to, but anyway, for me, for my family of origin issues, it was to be the peacemaker. It was to be the fixer. It was to not cause waves. It was to be the one that didn't cause frustration for my parents to, you know, uh, be in the background. My needs don't matter. Mm. And, and keep everybody around me happy. If everybody was around me was happy, I was happy. Okay. If people around me were chaotic, I felt internally anxious. Hmm. And so the childhood vow that I took on is my job in life, my job in the world is to take away people's anxiety or chaos or yeah. create peace for them or make their life better in some kind of way is to be exceptional so as to not uh, cause hurt for other people. And hmm. that impacted that impacted everything. And so that was my childhood vow. Yeah. And so so then I took that into ministry, leadership. Let's ease the burdens of the world by seeing a world without without extreme suffering. And so my childhood vow became became actually the vision that I committed my life to. Interesting. And yeah. Uh, good vision. Yeah. But actually coming from a place that was unhealthy. Mm. And so... And so that was my childhood commitment. And then, it, and then you know, that, that's the vision of the organization, but more day-to-day. How, yeah, how did that play out? How that played out was, again, in my family, I was not okay unless everybody around me was okay. Mm. So take that into leadership as a pastor. Yeah. There's conflict in my ministry, on the board, in this organization. My job, I was not okay unless everybody around me was okay. Mm. And when HFL started, everybody in the organization needed to be happy and good and fulfilled if people around me were not okay, I was not okay. Mm-hmm. And and I moved into unhealthy part of family systems theory, which we'll talk about in a minute, right. where I my, my emotional condition was was fused to the relationships that that were around me. Super unhealthy. So I mean you're the leader of twenty-five staff. Mm-hmm. Did you feel like you had to take on 25 staffs burdens. Yeah. Ugh. Yeah. That's that's the enmeshment. That's right. the one side of that spectrum. Yeah. There's enmeshment and detachment. Right. Which we'll get to more later. But yeah, yeah is if everybody was everybody around me needed to be okay for me to be able to sleep at night. Mm-hmm. Which that was my Did you lose enough. so much sleep? Oh, so much sleep. Oh my goodness. So much sleep. Yeah. Uh, and that was a super unhealthy part of me. And I used to think that if there was stress in the relationship system, mm-hmm. I needed to be a better leader. And if I was a better leader, then people around me would be more okay. I mean, this is totally jumping the gun, but how do you how do you see that now? That, and as I said earlier when we started, it's it's, it's a constant battle. I'll, I'll always I'll always default to the area of mm-hmm. of being too enmeshed in the relationship system. But I've come to a greater place of health on that, where where I obviously care about the people that I'm working with, but I'm not emotionally the same as right. the people that I'm working with. So I'm going to introduce a word here yep. called differentiation. With, I knew that was coming. <laughs> you walked right into that. <laughs> yeah, I did. Um, this is a new word for me. Mm-hmm. That's probably embarrassing because I'm almost 35. No, that's not unique. But differentiation you just gave a great example of coming into differentiation as, as a leader. Yeah. Can you explain what that means and what the two extreme opposites are sure. of that? Sure. Key to systems theory, family systems theory, is this concept of differentiation. 
and, and to understand differentiation, you need to understand family of origin stuff. And so if I go back to my own story of being emotionally the same as the, 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 the people who I was with fused my emotional well-being was fused to the emotional well-being of other people. Yeah. Um, that's one unhealthy end of the spectrum called enmeshment or being fused to the same as and and the other the other side of that spectrum is emotional detachment Mm -hmm. i don't care about what's going on uh i'm not you know that's nothing to do with me i show up and do my job but i'm not emotionally connected to anybody in my family or or and they're both they're they're both stress responses Mm -hmm. that we learned as kids Mm -hmm. mine was more on the enmeshment side of the the scale uh differentiation is the balance, the place where we are healthily, emotionally connected and invested in the people that we work with, mm-hmm. but also different from them, not the same as them. It's another word for difference would be uh, uh, an emotional, an emotional separation. So the one end of the spectrum in in enmeshment that we just talked about, coffin comes across as really spiritual, as like empathy, compassion. Like I'm so relationally, emotionally connected to that person's experience. I'm being empathetic. Mm-hmm. And that's not empathy. That's that's unhealthy enmeshment right. to the to that person. But differentiation is where where another way to think about it is where I stop and somebody else starts. Hmm. Where their self isn't mirroring who I think I am. I'm not basing who I am on what that person thinks of me, on how that person's doing, mm-hmm. I'm I'm a different person from that mm-hmm. from that individual. So it's it's the understanding of where I I end and someone else stops, where I stop and someone else starts. Right, and and that's that's the short version of how I would define differentiation. Yeah, uh, against those two extremes, and it's it's a struggle for everyone. Yeah, well, everyone. I, I think that even if you grew up in the church or in faith, I think sometimes. And enmeshment, well, at least for me, was maybe like a given. Like mm-hmm. you take on other people's burdens because that's what good Christian people do. Right. Well, and yeah. it's like Jesus had boundaries. Yep. He had great boundaries. I think yep. he differentiated quite well. Even secular theorists refer to Jesus as the most well-differentiated person in mm. history. Because think about it. He was incredibly invested in those relationships, connected, yeah. empathetic. Yeah compassionate but he also knew when when where he stopped and somebody else began began he also knew when it was time for him he also knew when it was time to pull away he said no to healing he said i'm going to get away from this crowd mm-hmm. he had a a self that was very differentiated from the crowds that he was with mm-hmm. but he still really cared about the people in the crowds and within his team as well mm-hmm. well go jesus <laughs> yeah because i'm just thinking and practically, how does that play out? How can you be a differentiated person? Let's just take our organi- our office, for example. Yep. How do you become a differentiated person? We care a lot about people here. But like having that separation or individualism, yet still having the empathy side of it. And how do you do it? How do you do it? Yeah, there's that constant, I think in human life, it's not just organizational, in any part of life, there's Mm -hmm. that constant tension Mm -hmm. between being an individual Mm -hmm. and also being connected to a community. Mm -hmm. Like 
we all struggle with that tension and that's impacted by culture, mm-hmm. upbringing and so many other factors. Yeah. Uh, and so we'll constantly live that tension in our society in Western society. We're more prone towards individualism where I'm an Island mm-hmm. and that's not differentiation. That's detachment mm-hmm. and emotional separation. And uh, also, also being overly empathetic to an unhealthy degree means being fused to that other person. And that's not, that's not healthy and that's not differentiation either. Mm-hmm. So it's a constant balance of trying to figure out uh, how I can be myself, how I can be an individual, but also how I can stay connected to the people that I love and that I work with. Mm. And I think something that maybe you, uh, okay, maybe I'm just speaking for myself, but sitting in the tension of that is not necessarily easy. No. And yeah. you have to be okay with the fact that there probably will be tension as you're learning this and uh, teaching yourself to be healthier yep. and creating those new pathways for yourself. Sitting in the tension of the people who you were enmeshed with might be uncomfortable with that. Yes, and the people you are enmeshed with, when you start to find differentiation, yeah. they accuse you of being emotionally distant. Yes. yes. Because now you've in a healthy way, created a separation between you and the other person. And they'll see that as detachment. Right. When it might not be, it's probably differentiation. Yeah. And they might throw their hands up in the air and wave and scream at you and they will. want your attention. But to be, that's where the learning and growth part comes is yep. being able to sit in that and grow through that and keep calm and carry on for lack of better words. Cause like if you right. present yourself non-anxiously, Yes. You have to, that's, that becomes your, no longer your problem. Yeah. That's a great way of putting it. That's a great way of putting it. And that's going back to what you said earlier about our office and the things that we've experienced over all of these years is there was a time because of my enmeshment where I used to make other people's problems, my problems running around trying to fix them mm-hmm. because when that person becomes okay, then I'll be okay. I'll be able to sleep at night. Right. And what a burden. yeah. And what that looks like now is caring about those problems, mm-hmm. holding someone else capable of addressing those problems in their life, mm-hmm. staying connected to them and caring mm-hmm. without assuming the responsibility for all that they're dealing with yeah. and being able to go home at the end of the night and leave that with God. Because if me trying to fix other people's problems, in addition to that making my life miserable, mm-hmm. it's also trying to do God's job for him in that other person's life. Absolutely. Yeah. So what are some practical pieces of advice in working through managing your, managing your anxiety before, before we get to the whole managing other people's anxiety part, which will be in part two, mm-hmm. uh, the book gave some, some great examples that I did not write down. So I'm hoping your brain whips them out, <laughs> but well, I'm hoping that they do too. Well, I, you know, I'll just pull it out, but there, there's like self tools and external tools for other people's anxiety. Yeah. The, the first tool I think it talks about, and to be honest with you, I read the book as an audio book oh, uh, and when I was hiking, so yeah. I don't have my book underlined. But one of the first tools that it talks about is a term that actually a lot of leaders and psychologists are, 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 are quote, they're quoting these days, which is a Viktor Frankl quote that says between stimulus Between stimulus Ah, and response, Mm. there's a space. Mm -hmm. In the space, there's a power to choose our response from to that stimulus, to that trigger. And in our response lies our growth and freedom 
I think about that from a differentiation perspective. Something happens where I become triggered. There's a there's an emotional space there, and there's an emotional reaction. That's the anxiety part, the emotional yeah. trigger, the emotional reaction. And there's a space. That space may be half a second. That space may be three months mm-hmm. where I have the ability to choose my response because my response isn't based on the emotional condition of the person that I'm sitting across from. And in that space, in that choice, lies the ability to be differentiated from that person's reality. Mm-hmm. And and some some authors call it non-anxious presence. Steve Cuss calls it calm presence. But the ability for a leader in a, an emotionally reactive situation or system to not to be emotionally reactive, mm-hmm. to be calm, to be non-anxious, mm-hmm. because then that that calm, non-anxious presence actually becomes uh, the starting point where everybody else finds their equilibrium. You freak out, other people will freak out. And so that's, I think, one of the parts of this book that talks about my internal response is noticing and looking for that space when I'm triggered. Can you, can you, we didn't talk about this and I meant to kind of at the start. So I'm like really backtracking. That's okay. But like a physical response to anxiety because yeah. lots of people may not recognize it at all. Right. Like, like, I don't think I'm an anxious person, but I get these gut feelings every once in a while or my pulse starts to race and that's anxiety. But like... Loosely, like how would you define a physical response to anxiety? The physical response is generally your first indication that you've been triggered. Yeah. So uh, I've seen some people, like they'll feel it in their gut. They'll feel this tension in their mm-hmm. gut. They feel heaviness in the chest. Some people might flush where they get, they just physically get hot. Yeah. Their brain starts to race. Mm-hmm. Um, those are the first indications that you've been triggered or there's a stimulus. Right. That, that has the potential to create uh, uh, an emotional reaction. Right. And so right at that point, right at that point where you notice it in your body, for me, the best tool that I know of, the best tool that, that I've been able to apply is to stay focused on me there, not the other person. Because yeah. when there's that reaction, yeah. I want to I wanna lash out at what seems to be the object of that trigger, mm-hmm. the person that I'm in a face-to-face with or the situation that I'm face-to-face with. Mm -hmm. But notice it in my body, focus on me, and then be curious about where that's coming from. Mm -hmm. What childhood meshes is that connected to? What what vows is that connected to? What false self is that connected to? You know, uh, for me, sometimes it's the false self is I've got to be the leader that that has all the answers for people. And so if something triggers me right there where I feel like, I'm not the leader that I want to be and I feel this thing in my gut, then asking myself, staying curious and compassionate about that response and then and then asking myself questions, okay, where's that coming from right now? What is mm. that? What is that? Great advice. Yeah. And sometimes it's really hard to do that in the moment, especially when the situation maybe emotionally spirals out of control. Mm-hmm. But still staying in charge of that. If that means saying to a person, hey, I need to walk out of this meeting right now and process this, Having enough self-compassion and kindness to give yourself that space. Hmm. Yeah, I heard, I heard it kind of uh, put it this way. There's this space. You and the other person are like two countries. Yeah. And have you heard this analogy? No. Too? Okay. And then, then there's no man's land right in between. 
And so you you say something, it's placed in no man's land until the person from the other country just comes and picks it up, reads it, and then chooses to respond. Mm-hmm. And then they respond, and you can choose to pick up their response or not pick up their response. Oh, that's and, good. And you have that time and that space in no man's land yep. to choose your reaction. Right. I don't know if I worded that right. You did. That's an awesome illustration. I hadn't heard that before, but that's a beautiful way of describing the opportunity that's there Mm -hmm. before you enter into somebody else's space to, to figure out what you're going to do there. Right. And sometimes it's so hard. It really is. Um, And the more chronically emotionally reactive you are of a person, the more difficult that moment, that space, the shorter that space is going to be. If you're detached from people and you live in that unhealthy extreme, you're probably going to have quite a bit of time mm-hmm. between um, stimulus and response. But for those of us that struggle with more of the enmeshed, fused side of things, uh, who are more emotionally reactive, that that space can be a fraction of a second. Mm-hmm. And you have to be compassionate. It's maybe going to take months for you to figure out what to do in that space. But even just recognizing the physical, what's going on physically is a place to start. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's a good one. I don't think we need any more tools. But <laughs> let's see. <laughs> we do, but not for this podcast. Um there was one there was one in here. Oh, I like this. Well, there's listening to learn versus listening to defend. That's yep. classic. Um and the gift of the last word. Oh. That one's really hard to do, right? And it's pain something. I'll read it. It's sometimes painful. Wait for me to flip the page. It's a sometimes painful technique to overcome these needs. Someone must have the last word, but it no longer must be me. And at the end it says, I will sit here being misunderstood and it is okay. Yes. So I missed a whole paragraph there, but that was. No, that's, yeah, that's a great way of saying it. And that's a great indication of, of calm, non-anxious presence. Right. If you can let someone go off, emotionally react, mm-hmm. have the last word, stay connected to them emotionally in the conversation, but not fused to their emotion, mm-hmm. to the to the degree where you're okay with them, in, them having the last word, yeah. even though you may walk away feeling, I wish I would have said that, or I feel misunderstood, mm-hmm. or they still don't get it, mm-hmm. rather than giving in to that emotional reactive mm-hmm. ten, temptation to say the last thing just to make sure that you're you're understood. That's a great indication and a great sign of being differentiated. Yeah. Oh man. Well, I feel like before we get into the external part of things, mm-hmm. we're going to end we're going to end this part. Leave leave it on a cliffhanger because we want you to come back for part 2. But um no, I'm kind of just going to leave this very abruptly because I want you to come back for part 2. So, that was part 1 of learning how to manage yourself I'm just kidding. That's not really what it was, but stay tuned for part two. Thanks for listening to What in the World, where we seek to educate and inspire. Here at Hungry for Life, we are passionate about your group having a global impact in eradicating needless suffering. For more information, head over to our website at hungryforlife.org. And you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and wherever you may listen to podcasts. Tune in every other week for another conversation about what is happening at Hungry for Life.